Section 21 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 1 by Alexandre Dumas, translated by George Burnham Ives. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 2 of The Sensi As we have said, the mind of Beatrice was susceptible to the best and the worst influences. It could attain excellence and descend to guilt. She went and told her mother of the fresh outrage she had undergone. This roused in the heart of the other woman the sting of her own wrongs, and stimulating each other's desire for revenge, they decided upon the murder of Francesco. Guerra was called in to this council of death. His heart was a prey to hatred and revenge. He undertook to communicate with Giacomo Sensi, without whose concurrence the women would not act, as he was the head of the family when his father was left out of account. Giacomo entered readily into the conspiracy. It will be remembered what he had formerly suffered from his father. Since that time he had married, and the close-fisted old man had left him with his wife and children to languish in poverty. Guerra's house was selected to meet in and concert matters. Giacomo hired a Spiro named Marzio, and Guerra a second named Olimpio. Both these men had private reasons for committing the crime, one being actuated by love, the other by hatred. Mazio, who was in the service of Giacomo, had often seen Beatrice and loved her, but with that silent and hopeless love which devours the soul. When he conceived that the proposed crime would draw him nearer to Beatrice, he accepted his part in it without any demur. As for Olimpio, he hated Francesco, because the latter had caused him to lose the post of Castellan of Rocco Petrella, a fortified stronghold in the kingdom of Naples belonging to Prince Colonna, Almost every year, Francesco Sensi spent some months at Rocco Petrella with his family, for Prince Colonna, a noble and magnificent but needy prince, had much esteem for Francesco, whose purse he found extremely useful. It had so happened that Francesco, being dissatisfied with Olimpio, complained about him to Prince Colonna, and he was dismissed. After several consultations between the Sensi family, the Abbey, and the Ispiri, the following plan of action was decided upon. The period when Francesco Sensi was accustomed to go to Rocco Petrella was approaching. It was arranged that Olimpio, conversant with the district and its inhabitants, should collect a party of a dozen Neapolitan bandits and conceal them in a forest through which the travelers would have to pass. Upon a given signal, the whole family were to be seized and carried off. A heavy ransom was to be demanded, and the sons were to be sent back to Rome to raise the sum. But, under pretext of inability to do so, they were to allow the time fixed by the bandits to lapse, when Francesco was to be put to death. Thus all suspicions of a plot would be avoided and the real assassins would escape justice. This well-devised scheme was nevertheless unsuccessful. When Francesco left Rome, the scouts sent in advance by the conspirators could not find the bandits. The latter, not being warned beforehand, failed to come down before the passage of the travelers who arrived safe and sound at Rocco Petrella. The bandits, after having patrolled the road in vain, came to the conclusion that their prey had escaped, and unwilling to stay any longer in a place where they had already spent a week, went off in quest of better luck elsewhere. Francesco had in the meantime settled down in the fortress, and to be more free to tyrannize over Lucrezia and Beatrice, sent back to Rome Giacomo and his two other sons. He then recommenced his infamous attempts upon Beatrice, and with such persistence that she resolved herself to accomplish the deed which at first she desired to entrust to other hands. Olimpio and Marzio, who had nothing to fear from justice, remained lurking about the castle. One day Beatrice saw them from a window and made signs that she had something to communicate to them. The same night Olimpio, who having been a castellan knew all the approaches to the fortress, made his way there with his companion. Beatrice awaited them at a window which looked on to a secluded courtyard. She gave them letters which she had written to her brother and to Monsignor Guerra, 
The former was to approve, as he had done before, the murder of their father, for she would do nothing without his sanction. As for Monsignor Guerra, he was to pay Olympio a thousand piastres, half the stipulated sum. Mazio, acting out of pure love for Beatrice, whom he worshipped as a Madonna, which, observing the girl, gave him a handsome scarlet mantle, trimmed with gold lace, telling him to wear it for love of her. As for the remaining moiety, it was to be paid when the death of the old man had placed his wife and daughter in possession of his fortune. The two spieri departed, and the imprisoned conspirators anxiously awaited their return. On the day fixed they were seen again, Monsignor Guerra had paid the thousand piastres, and Giacomo had given his consent. Nothing now stood in the way of the execution of this terrible deed, which was fixed for the 8th of September, the day of the Nativity of the Virgin. But Signora Lucrezia, a very devout person, having noticed this circumstance, would not be a party to the committal of a double sin. The matter was therefore deferred until the next day, the 9th. That evening, the 9th of September, 1598, the two women, supping with the old man, mixed some narcotic with his wine so adroitly that, suspicious though he was, he never detected it, and, having swallowed the potion, soon fell into a deep sleep. The evening previous, Marzio and Olympio had been admitted into the castle, where they had lain concealed all night and all day, for, as will be remembered, the assassination would have been effected the day before had it not been for the religious scruples of Signora Lucrezia Petroni. Towards midnight, Beatrice fetched them out of their hiding-place and took them to her father's chamber, the door of which she herself opened. The assassins entered, and the two women awaited the issue in the room adjoining. After a moment, seeing the spieri reappear, pale and nerveless, shaking their heads without speaking, they at once inferred that nothing had been done. "'What's the matter?' cried Beatrice. "'And what hinders you?' "'It is a cowardly act.' replied the assassins, to kill a poor old man in his sleep. At the thought of his age we were struck with pity. Then Beatrice disdainfully raised her head and in a deep, firm voice thus reproached them. Is it possible that you, who pretend to be brave and strong, have not courage enough to kill a sleeping old man? How would it be if he were awake, and thus you steal our money? Very well, since your cowardice compels me to do so, I will kill my father myself, but you will not long survive him. Hearing these words, the spiri felt ashamed of their irresolution, and indicating by signs that they would fulfill their compact, they entered the room, accompanied by the two women. As they had said, a ray of moonlight shone through the open window and brought into prominence the tranquil face of the old man, the sight of whose white hair had so affected them. This time they showed no mercy. One of them carried two great nails, such as those portrayed in the pictures of the crucifixion. The other bore a mallet. The first placed a nail upright over one of the old man's eyes, the other struck it with the hammer and drove it into his head. The throat was pierced in the same way with the second nail, and thus the guilty soul, stained throughout its career with crimes of violence, was in its turn violently torn from the body which lay writhing on the floor where it had rolled. The young girl, then faithful to her word, handed the spieri a large purse containing the rest of the sum agreed upon, and they left. When they found themselves alone, the women drew the nails out of the wounds wrapped the corpse in a sheet, and dragged it through the rooms toward a small rampart, intending to throw it down into a garden, which had been allowed to run to waste. They hoped that the old man's death would be attributed to his having accidentally fallen off the terrace on his way in the dark to a closet at the end of the gallery. But their strength failed them when they reached the door of the last room, and while resting there, Lucrezia perceived the two spieri sharing the money before making their escape. At her call they came to her, carried the corpse to the rampart, and from a spot pointed out by the women where the terrace was unfenced by any parapet, 
they threw it into an elder tree below, whose branches retained it suspended. When the body was found, the following morning, hanging in the branches of the elder tree, everyone supposed, as Beatrice and her stepmother had foreseen, that Francesco, stepping over the edge of the 386 terrace in the dark, had thus met his end. The body was so scratched and disfigured that no one noticed the wounds made by the two nails. The ladies, as soon as the news was imparted to them, came out from their rooms, weeping and lamenting in so natural a manner as to disarm any suspicions. The only person who formed any was the laundress to whom Beatrice entrusted the sheet in which her father's body had been wrapped. Accounting for its bloody condition by a lame explanation which the laundress accepted without question, or pretended to do so, and immediately after the funeral, the mourners returned to Rome, hoping at length to enjoy quietude and peace. For some time, indeed, they did enjoy tranquillity, perhaps poisoned by remorse, but ere long retribution pursued them. The court of Naples, hearing of the sudden and unexpected death of Francesco Sensi, and conceiving some suspicions of violence, dispatched a royal commissioner to Petrella to exhume the body and make minute inquiries, if there appeared to be adequate grounds for doing so. On his arrival, all the domestics in the castle were placed under arrest and sent in chains to Naples. No incriminating proofs, however, were found, except in the evidence of the laundress, who deposed that Beatrice had given her a blood-stained sheet to wash. This clue led to terrible consequences. For further questioned, she declared that she could not believe the explanation given to account for its condition. The evidence was sent to the Roman court, but at that period it did not appear strong enough to warrant the arrest of the Sensi family, who remained undisturbed for many months, during which time the youngest boy died. Of the five brothers there only remained Giacomo, the eldest, and Bernardo, the youngest, but one. Nothing prevented them from escaping to Venice or Florence, but they remained quietly in Rome. Meantime, Monsignor Guerra received private information that, shortly before the death of Francesco, Mazzio and Olimpio had been seen prowling round the castle, and that the Neapolitan police had received orders to arrest them. The Monsignor was a most wary man, and very difficult to catch napping when warned in time. He immediately hired two other spiri to assassinate Mazzio and Olimpio. The one commissioned to put Olimpio out of the way came across him at Terni, and conscientiously did his work with a poniard. But Marzio's man unfortunately arrived at Naples too late, and found his bird already in the hands of the police. He was put to the torture and confessed everything. His deposition was sent to Rome, whither he shortly afterwards followed it, to be confronted with the accused. Warrants were immediately issued for the arrest of Giacomo, Bernardo, Lucrezia, and Beatrice. They were at first confined in the Sensi Palace under a strong guard, but the proofs against them becoming stronger and stronger, they were removed to the castle of Corte Savella, where they were confronted with Marzio. But they obstinately denied both any complicity in the crime and any knowledge of the assassin. Beatrice, above all, displayed the greatest assurance, demanding to be the first to be confronted with Marzio, whose mendacity she affirmed with such calm dignity that he, more than ever smitten by her beauty, determined since he could not live for her, to save her by his death. Consequently, he declared all his statements to be false and asked forgiveness from God and from Beatrice. Neither threats nor torture could make him recant, and he died firm in his denial under frightful tortures. The sensi then thought themselves safe. God's justice, however, still pursued them. The Spiro, who had killed Olympio, happened to be arrested for another crime— and, making a clean breast, confessed that he had been employed by Monsignor Guerra to put out of the way a fellow assassin named Olimpio, who knew too many of the Monsignor's secrets. Luckily for himself, Monsignor Guerra heard of this opportunely. A man of infinite resource, he lost not a moment in timid or irresolute plans, 
but as it happened that at the very moment when he was warned, the charcoal dealer who supplied his house with fuel was at hand, he sent for him, purchased his silence with a handsome bribe, and then, buying for almost their weight in gold the dirty clothes which he wore, he assumed these, cut off all his beautiful cherished fair hair, stained his beard, smudged his face, bought two asses, laden with charcoal, and limped up and down the streets of Rome, crying, "'A charcoal! A charcoal!' Then, whilst all the detectives were hunting high and low for him, he got out of the city, met a company of merchants under escort, joined them, and reached Naples, where he embarked. What ultimately became of him was never known. It has been asserted, but without confirmation, that he succeeded in reaching France and enlisted in a Swiss regiment in the pay of Henry the Fourth. The confession of the Spiro and the disappearance of Monsignor Guerra left no moral doubt of the guilt of the Sensi. They were consequently sent from the castle to the prison. The two brothers, when put to the torture, broke down and confessed their guilt. Lucrezia Petroni's full habit of body rendered her unable to bear the torture of the rope, and on being suspended in the air begged to be lowered when she confessed all she knew. As for Beatrice, she continued unmoved. Neither promises, threats, nor torture had any effect upon her. She bore everything unflinchingly, and the judge Ulysses Moscati himself, famous though he was in such matters, failed to draw from her a single incriminating word. Unwilling to take any further responsibility, he referred the case to Clement the Eighth and the Pope, conjecturing that the judge had been too lenient in applying the torture to a young and beautiful Roman lady, took it out of his hands and entrusted it to another judge whose severity and insensibility to emotion were undisputed. This latter reopened the whole interrogatory, and as Beatrice up to that time had only been subjected to the ordinary torture, he gave instructions to apply both the ordinary and extraordinary. This was the rope and pulley, one of the most terrible inventions ever devised by the most ingenious of tormentors. To make the nature of this horrid torture plain to our readers, we give a detailed description of it, adding an extract of the presiding judge's report of the case, taken from the Vatican manuscripts. Of the various forms of torture then used in Rome, the most common were the whistle, the fire, the sleepless, and the rope. The mildest, the torture of the whistle, was used only in the case of children and old persons. It consisted in thrusting between the nails and the flesh reeds cut in the shape of whistles. The fire, frequently employed before the invention of the sleepless torture, was simply roasting the soles of the feet before a hot fire. The sleepless torture, invented by Marsilius, was worked by forcing the accused into an angular frame of wood about five feet high, the sufferer being stripped and his arms tied behind his back to the frame. Two men, relieved every five hours, sat beside him and roused him the moment his eyes closed. Marsilius says he has never found a man of proof against this torture, but here he claims more than he is justly entitled to. Farinacci states that out of one hundred accused persons subjected to it, five only refused to confess. A very satisfactory result for the inventor. Lastly comes the torture of the rope and pulley, the most in vogue of all and known in other Latin countries as the strapado. It was divided into three degrees of intensity, the slight, the severe, and the very severe. The first, or slight torture, which consisted mainly in the apprehensions it caused, comprised the threat of severe torture, introduction to the torture chamber, a stripping and the tying of the rope in readiness for its appliance. To increase the terror these preliminaries excited, a pang of physical pain was added by tightening a cord round the wrists. This often sufficed to extract a confession from women or men of highly strung nerves. The second degree, or severe torture, consisted of fastening the sufferer in, stripped naked, and his hands tied behind his back. By the wrist to one end of the rope, passed around a pulley bolted into the vaulted ceiling. 
the other end being attached to a windlass, by turning which he could be hoisted into the air and dropped again either slowly or with a jerk, as ordered by the judge. The suspension generally lasted during the recital of a paternoster, an Ave Maria, or a Miserere. If the accused persisted in his denial, it was doubled. This second degree, the last of the ordinary torture, was put in practice when the crime appeared reasonably probable but was not absolutely proved. The third, or very severe, the first of the extraordinary forms of torture, was so called when the sufferer, having hung suspended by the wrists for sometimes a whole hour, was swung about by the executioner either like the pendulum of a clock or by elevating him with the windlass and dropping him to within a foot or two of the ground. If he stood this torture, a thing almost unheard of, seeing that it cut the flesh of the wrist to the bone and dislocated the limbs, weights were attached to the feet, thus doubling the torture. This last form of torture was only applied when an atrocious crime had been proved to have been committed upon a sacred person, such as a priest, a cardinal, a prince, or an eminent and learned man. Having seen that Beatrice was sentenced to the torture ordinary and extraordinary, and having explained the nature of these tortures, we proceed to quote the official report. And as in reply to every question, she would confess nothing. We caused her to be taken by two officers and led from the prison to the torture chamber, where the torturer was in attendance. There, after cutting off her hair, he made her sit on a small stool, undressed her, pulled off her shoes, tied her hands behind her back, fastened them to a rope passed over a pulley bolted to the ceiling of the aforesaid chamber, and wound up at the other end by a four-lever windlass worked by two men. Before hoisting her from the ground, we again interrogated her, uh, touching the aforesaid parricide, but notwithstanding the confessions of her brother and her stepmother, which were again produced, uh, bearing their signatures, she persisted in denying everything said. "'Haul me about and do whatever you like with me. I have spoken the truth, and will tell you nothing else, even if I were torn to pieces.' Upon this, we had her hoisted in the air by the wrists, to the height of about two feet from the ground, while we recited a paternoster, and then again questioned her as to the facts and circumstances of the aforesaid parricide. But she would make no further answer, only saying, "'You are killing me! You are killing me!' We then raised her to the elevation of four feet and began an Ave Maria, but before our prayer was half finished she fainted away or pretended to do so. We caused a bucketful of water to be thrown over her head. Feeling its coolness, she recovered consciousness and cried, "'My God, I am dead! You are killing me! My God!' But this was all she would say. We then raised her higher still and recited a miserere, during which, instead of joining in the prayer, she shook convulsively and cried several times, "'My God! My God!' Again, questioned as to the aforesaid parricide, she would confess nothing, saying only that she was innocent, and then again fainted away. We caused more water to be thrown over her, then she recovered her senses, opened her eyes, and cried, "'Oh, cursed executioners! You are killing me! You are killing me!' But nothing more would she say. A seeing which, in that she persisted in her denial, we ordered the torturer to proceed to the torture by jerks. He accordingly hoisted her ten feet from the ground, and when there we enjoined her to tell the truth. But whether she would not or could not speak, she answered only by a motion of the head, indicating that she could say nothing. Seeing which, we made a sign to the executioner to let go the rope, and she fell with all her weight from the height of ten feet to that of two feet. Her arms from the shock were dislocated from their sockets, she uttered a loud cry, and swooned away. We again caused water to be dashed in her face. She returned to herself and again cried out, "'Infamous assassins! You are killing me, but were you to tear out my arms, I would tell you nothing else!' Upon this we ordered a weight of fifty pounds to be fastened to her feet. 
but at this moment the door opened and many voices cried, Enough, enough! Uh, do not torture her any more! These voices were those of Giacomo, Bernardo, and Lucrezia Petroni. The judges, perceiving the obstinacy of Beatrice, had ordered that the accused, who had been separated for five months, should be confronted. They advanced into the torture chamber, and seeing Beatrice hanging by the wrists, her arms disjointed and covered with blood, Giacomo cried out, the sin is committed. Nothing further remains but to save our souls by repentance. Undergo death courageously, and not suffer you to be thus tortured. Then Beatrice said, shaking her head as if to cast off grief, Do you then wish to die? Since you wish it, be it so. Then turning to the officers, Untie me, said she. Read the examination to me, and what I have to confess— I will confess. What I have to deny, I will deny. Beatrice was then lowered and untied. A barber reduced the dislocation of her arms in the usual manner. The examination was read over to her, and as she had promised, she made a full confession. After this confession, at the request of the two brothers, they were all confined in the same prison. But the next day, Giacomo and Bernardo were taken to the cells of Torninona. As for the women, they remained where they were. End of part two of the Sensi, recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.